on March 5th at St. Thomas Church, a Catholic Church in Thomasville, Connecticut, there was um, an, an incredible moment that happened in the context of that service. After the Mass, after the Sacrament of Communion was complete, the priest got up and he said, I have to share with you that something extraordinary just happened, something miraculous. Now, in the Catholic tradition, uh, every time you have communion, it is miraculous because the bread and the juice, uh, I'm sorry, the bread and the wine, as they understand it, are being miraculously changed to be the body and blood of Jesus. This priest said, in addition to that, something incredible happened. He said, as our Eucharistic minister was handing out wafers, handing out the host, the body of Christ, to people as they came forward, uh, there was a concern there wasn't going to be enough communion left in the dish, and so um, they thought they were going to run out, but they didn't run out. Not only did they not run out, but they had more at the end than they had at the beginning. And so the priest is visibly moved. This is actually um, recorded, and so you can watch it online. The priest is visually moved. His name is Reverend Joseph Crowley. And he describes it as very powerful, very awesome, very real, and very shocking. Um, and I read this story for the first time this week. It happened back in March, but it came to my attention this week. Uh, and a bunch of things came to my mind as I heard it. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind was, of course, I believe that God does miracles. And so, of course, I believe that God could have done this, and that's amazing and, and you know, wonderful if that's the case. The second thing that came to my mind is, well, just because someone says a miracle happened doesn't mean a miracle happened. And so, you know, how do we go about determining what's going on and what's really happening in the background? Uh, and then I kept reading, and I, and I discovered something incredible that I love about the Catholic tradition. Um, they actually have a process by which they investigate miracles. So, like the priest told the bishop, and the bishop told I don't understand entirely, I'm not Catholic, but the Miracle Investigating Committee, and they are like investigating to see if this is a legit miracle. And I thought, first of all, how awesome is that? And what would we do as Presbyterians if, you know, we didn't run out of communion on a Sunday morning and I told you it would just be the end of the world? We wouldn't have, we have no committee ready to investigate that, right? And so, um, the, they might investigate me, but they're not going to investigate that. Um, so, the idea, first of all, that um, the Catholic tradition is like ready to see what God might do really gets me excited, right? I, I love that idea that they're ready to see what God might do. Um, the other piece of this story um, that comes after the story, um, so they're still investigating. I can't tell you what the results of the investigation are. They're still investigating. But um, the other piece that comes after the story, I didn't love as much. Uh, and, and that was this recognition that perhaps this uh, miracle, if it is investigated and confirmed, um, would be attributed to a, a particular individual. There's a um, process in the Catholic Church by which you become a saint. Uh, and we got to pause game for a minute and explain a couple things. So, in the New Testament, we see the language of saints all over the place, right? Paul writes his letters and he addresses them, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Ephesus or the saints in Corinth, right? So, saint in the New Testament just means Christian. That's all it means, right? It means someone who is saved, therefore a Christian. In the Catholic tradition, um, they have a, a second category with a capital S, and that means uh, a, a saint capital S is someone who has skipped the process of purgatory, which is not a process that Presbyterians really buy into, um, and, and has gone straight to heaven and therefore can intercede directly with God. So, uh, there are two steps to that process. The first process is to be um, beatified, and the next step is to be canonized, and it takes two miracles, okay? And the guy who was a former 
priest in this particular church, not the guy who's the priest there now, um, really neat, amazing man, was beatified uh, in 2020, and this might be his second miracle to be canonized as a saint. So, um, as I read this story, a couple things ran through my mind. The first is, I I love what Paul says, that he didn't come to preach the gospel um, because he was eloquent and a great preacher and had good stories and illustrations. He says, you know, I came with the Spirit and with power. And I think we're supposed to believe that the Spirit shows up with power in our lives. And so, I really love um, that there are moments where we need to be looking for those windows of opportunity where God's going to come in powerful ways. But I also recognize that sometimes we connect God's powerful movement, the, the miraculous things that happen in our midst, with individual people that we want to elevate. And I got to tell you, this makes me a little bit nervous. And it's not just a Catholic thing, it's a Presbyterian thing, it's an all-Christians thing, right? We often want to say, well, you know, that person might have a better connection to God than me. And so, of course, they might do an amazing miracle or preach a great sermon or whatever, um, but it's probably not something that I could do. Or, yeah, I know her, and her faith is not up to it. I don't think that she's a very spiritual person. Uh, I know she comes to church, but I'm not buying into her story. Um, Or, people say this to me all the time, Jim, and and I push back on it hard, Jim, I know you have more access to God than I do, so please say a prayer because I know God hears you better. And I'm like, that is like anathema to our theology, right? We do not believe that. Um, But we live into this idea so often, right, that there is this spiritual elitism that some people are closer to God than others. And I think in some ways this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 has been utilized for that purpose over the history of the church because we want to talk about who is spiritual and who is unspiritual. And we want to say, maybe the pastor is spiritual and I'm not. Maybe the saints are spiritual, but regular Christians are not. Uh, There are other Christian movements that say, hey, you must speak in tongues to be spiritual. Hey, you must um, have uh, the experience of being slain in the Spirit to be spiritual. There are single-issue believers. We have like single-issue voters in America. We have single-issue believers who say, hey, being spiritual just means you're all in on apologetics, or you're all in on foreign missions, or you're all in on this one ancient Christian leader who was so wise, or you're all in in social activism, and this one thing is what it takes to be spiritual. And, and I want to push back on all of that. And I want to suggest that one of the the fundamental messages of the Christian faith, and I think Paul's central message here in 1 Corinthians 2, is that none of those things make us spiritual people. And in fact, there is no hierarchy of spiritualness in the Christian tradition. This is so obvious that it seems like maybe I shouldn't even say it, but it is the Spirit who makes us spiritual. It is the Spirit who makes us spiritual. It is the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit living in every single Christian that makes us um, able to access the mind and the person and the presence of God. So nobody gets more access than anybody else. Nobody gets more spiritual wisdom than anybody else. We all have the same incredible gift of God the Holy Spirit living in us and dwelling in us from the moment we profess faith and become followers of Jesus and participants in His life. And that means what unites all Christians is far more profound than all of the little things that divide us. 
the Spirit of God living within us, the spiritual wisdom of God that we receive through Christ, that is our common ground. And the most immature Christian shares the most important aspect of the spiritual life with the most devout saints who've ever lived. So, I want to think a little bit this morning about the role of the Spirit in our lives and how the Spirit unites us to each other as Christians and how the Spirit unites us to God. And I want to start by talking about the role of the Holy Spirit before Jesus. So, if you are to go back and read through the Old Testament, there are a lot of places where the Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit's a major figure in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit always shows up in these really interesting ways. There's a guy named Bezalel, and Bezalel is a um, worker of gold and wood and metal. And God picks him to help build the tabernacle, which is like the tent in which the Ark of the Covenant is going to be placed. And the Holy Spirit comes on Bezalel to help him be a better craftsman. Isn't that interesting? He gets better at working with wood and metal and, and jewelry through the power of the Holy Spirit, so we can help make the temple, uh, the tabernacle. There's another guy named Samson. You guys remember Samson, right? Long hair, big muscles, Samson. Uh, Samson, we always think, well, he's super strong because he's got long hair, and that's how that goes. That's what I've been told. I'll, I'll never know for sure. Um, but <laughs> you laughed a little too hard for that one. Um, <laughs> Samson is um, this man who has the Holy Spirit, right? And Every time he does something incredible, these incredible feats of strength, the Scriptures say the Spirit of God descended upon him, and then he goes off and does this amazing thing. Notice something about Samson. Uh, Samson's not a per terribly good guy. He's not a moral guy. He's not incredibly devoted to God, more so than your average person. Uh, he doesn't have amazing access to God, but he gets the Holy Spirit for this particular time and for these particular purposes. There's a guy named Isaiah. We know Isaiah, right? Isaiah's a prophet. Uh, Isaiah talks about um, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor right? and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah says, hey, I got the Holy Spirit because He has a message He wants me to tell people. And I didn't get super strength, and I didn't get the ability to be an amazing craftsman, but I got a message I have to tell. Throughout the whole Old Testament, this is how the Holy Spirit works. Okay, the Holy Spirit comes on individual people for particular reasons. They get an ability they didn't have before for a limited time. But in the Old Testament, there is this idea that something more might happen. In the Old Testament, there's this idea that one day, perhaps we could have more than just these limited uh, individual particular moments of the presence of God. So Isaiah says, as Paul quotes here in our passage this morning, what no eye has seen, nor no ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Isaiah says, hey, we can't even begin to imagine what God has in store for us, but maybe one day we will. Maybe one day we'll get to know all the good things that God has in store for us. So in the prophet Joel, um, we get this promise. And the promise is um, that one day when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, in, a, in a day in the future, in a day to be anticipated, 
Um, the Spirit will not come as He has every single time in the past to an individual purpose, an individual perp- person for an individual purpose. Instead, the Holy Spirit will come on all flesh, men and women, slaves and free, and that we will all have this incredible connection to each other and to God that unites us as one. And then we get to Pentecost, right? And that's the story of Pentecost. That's the story of the church. It's what Jesus leaves us when He ascends to heaven. He leaves us the Holy Spirit and He says, hey, you no longer get little doses of God's presence. You get the whole thing. You get God living inside you as, as in a little bit like God lived in me. You get the incredible promise that the Spirit is no longer going to come to you for a limited purpose, but permanent for your identity. No longer will the Spirit's work in your life be about what you can do. It will be about who we can be, who we are. And our identity changes because we have this connection with God that we cannot lose and that we could not imagine before Jesus. So, Uh, I've shared this illustration before, um, but I understand that leadership is repetition, and there's this car thing going on today. So, um, I often think about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives um, as the role of God fixing the broken alignment of a car. So, just imagine for a moment that you are um, driving a car with bad alignment and you are struggling to keep your wheels straight, right? Because um, your axles aren't aligned, your wheels aren't aligned, and and you can't drive even unless you're constantly herky-jerky with the wheel. Uh, And then imagine somebody comes along and they fix the alignment of your car. And all of a sudden, you now have the capacity to drive your car as it was intended to be driven. You can stay on the straight and narrow. You can drive like a normal person. But you have a lifetime of experience of driving like this. So even though um, you have been transformed, your car has been transformed, your habits have not yet. Uh, And so there is this process of of bringing your habits to match the new life within you, the new alignment within you. And by the way, everybody else around you is a terrible driver too for all those same reasons. That's not a metaphor. I think everybody else is a terrible driver. But um, the moral of the story is really profound, right? That, That what God does for us by sending the Holy Spirit into us is He no longer says, hey, here's one cool extra thing you can do. He says, hey, I want to live in you and with you, and I'm in you, and I'm in you, and I'm in you, and I'm in us, and we have this incredible identity because we get to know God in a way that no one else got to do. Uh, And so, Paul says we get the wisdom and the mind of God. And he does make a distinction between the spiritual and the unspiritual. He says, yeah, there are people that are spiritual and not. And the difference is quite simple. If you are in Christ, then you are united to the Spirit, and you have access to the mind and the presence of God. But some of the stuff that we teach and understand as Christians doesn't make sense to people who don't yet know Jesus. It doesn't make sense to people who don't yet have the Spirit. This is what Paul means when he says, those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit. Uh, William Barclay says it like this. He says, um, the definition of the person who lives without spirit is an individual who lives as if there is nothing beyond the physical life, and there are no needs other than material needs. Such a person lives like nothing is more important than the satisfaction of the sexual urge, and thus cannot imagine the meaning of chastity. They live as one who ranks the amassing of material things as the supreme end of life and therefore cannot understand generosity. 
They live as one who has never a thought beyond this world and cannot understand the things of God. Barclay says, and Paul says, that we have this spiritual wisdom. We have the mind of Christ. We have the ability to begin to see the world as God does. We're not there yet, right? We're still fixing our old habits, but we have the ability to begin that journey. This morning, as we were celebrating Bentley's baptism, we read a scripture from Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And just before that, Paul has a really interesting conversation about unity and the Spirit. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. I really like this idea. Paul says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says we do it by pursuing humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. In a nutshell, Paul says, hey, we've been given unity, but we have to maintain it, and it starts with me. Everybody say, it starts with me. It starts with me. It's not my job to get you fixed. Right? It's not my job to get your life more spiritual. It's not my job to correct you or to judge you. It starts with me. Um, My job as a person trying to live in partnership with the Spirit within me is to say, I want to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I want to be united to God and united to you, and I got to work on me first. It starts with me. Uh, There's an old um, illustration that we've done for kids' messages before. It's really quite simple. Um, I've got this glass And what's this glass full of right now? Air. Air. Yeah. And the question is, uh, how do you get the air out of it? What do you do to get all the air out of this glass? We get like a vacuum hose or something maybe and pull it out. That might break the glass. Um, How do we do it? How do we get the air out? Ah, You fill it up, right? Such a simple idea um, that if I want to be more united to the Spirit of God, if I want to have more of God's Spirit in me. It's not about saying, hey, what are the bad things I need to stop doing? And the most important thing I do is I say, hmm, that was really full. Um, <laughs> the most important thing I do is say, hey, how do I get more of the good that I already have? Uh, I don't want to suggest that you don't already have the Spirit. I want to suggest that part of being a follower of Jesus means you want more of the good you already have. Uh, Imagine meeting the love of your life and wooing her or wooing him and finally convincing them to marry you and walking down the aisle and making your promises to each other. And then after the ceremony saying, great, I'm done with that and I'm going to move on to other more important things in my life. That's not how it works, right? Once you get that incredible privilege of uniting your life with the person that you love, then you discover over time that you love them more, right? And you grow uh, in knowing them more, and the good that you have, you want more of, right? 
And, and that's what Christ calls us to do with the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We are spiritual people, but the good we have, we're called to want more of, to spend time striving to know God more through the gift of the Spirit, through the gospel message of the crucified and risen Christ, through the Word of God, through the act of partnership with the Spirit and service to the poor, through the sharing of the story of Jesus with nonbelievers, and through the discipling of younger Christians. Um, our job is to try to be so filled with the Spirit that there's no room for anything else in our lives, and so that we have this unity with each other and with Christ. We've been given access to the deep things of God, the things that Moses and Isaiah and David and Elijah and Bezalel and Samson desperately wanted to know and to see. There is no longer a hierarchy of access to God. There's no individual Christian or congregation or denomination that's closer to God than any other. We are spiritual because we have the Spirit. And therefore, our lives are no longer about what we can do with God's little bit of help, but who we can be with God's life living inside of us. And starting with us means wanting more of the good we already have so we can be one in the Spirit and be one with each other. So I'm coming back to the communion wafers. Uh, and I don't know the details yet about how that uh, event happened or didn't happen. I don't know the result of that miracle or not. But um, as I thought about that this week, I thought perhaps we have more in common with our in the Spirit sisters and brothers than we think, that we too believe that God is at work in the world doing awesome and powerful things, that the primary purpose of the Spirit and God's power is to bring people to Jesus, literally the wafer to Jesus, or um, bringing someone to worship, or bringing someone to know Christ, or inviting them to have the Spirit in their lives, and that like the disciples who distributed the fish and the loaves to the 5,000, we get this awesome privilege of carrying the presence of God into the world and participating in His miraculous work. You don't have to be a beatified individual or a saint. You don't have to be a pastor or a priest. You don't even have to be a particularly good Christian. You just have to have the Spirit of God within you. And because you are bearers of the Spirit, you are the ones Christ sends to the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.